The future of education isn't fixed. It's made one thought, one conversation, one choice at a time. I'm Bernard Bull, your host, and I've spent most of my adult life thinking, talking, and writing about the future of education, struggling to figure out how I can help create a more hopeful, humane, and inspiring education system. Welcome to EDU Futures, where I talk with world-class innovators, scholars, futurists, and people discontent enough with the status quo to do something about it. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm excited to have Michael Horn, who is author and co-author of multiple books, white papers, articles on education, exploring topics ranging from disruptive innovation to blended learning, and as you will learn in this conversation, even about choosing college. He's head of strategy for the Entangled Group and a senior partner for Entangled Solutions, which offers innovation services to education institutions. Michael is also a co-founder and a distinguished fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruptive Innovation. And most recently, Michael co-authored a new book, which will be the focus of our conversation today, Choosing College, How to Make Better Learning Decisions Throughout Your Life. Michael, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great to have you. I've followed your work for a long time. You've done some some really amazing work, and I love talking to people whose work expands both higher education and K-12, uh, a kindred spirit in that way. Yes, indeed. Yeah, it, it mirrors a lot of your interests. I know that. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's give the listeners a chance to learn a little bit about you. The, the, you have a name that's quite familiar in this space, so uh, many know about your work. But I'd love to just pause and go back a little bit. If you could take us on a, a brief journey of how did you end up doing what you're doing today? Take Go back as far as you want. Not like you're sitting on a couch yeah. with a psychologist, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, sure thing. You, you know, it's. I think like many, uh, the lives we live and the paths we take are accidental, and mine's no exception on that one. Uh, I graduated college, uh, the 9-11 generation, uh, and so wanted to do something public service oriented and focused on helping to uh, address challenges that I saw out there. Ended up working for David Gergen, uh, the political analyst, uh, and uh, in, in an incredible capacity of being his research assistant, but was sort of, you know, half chief of staff, I guess. And after a few years of writing about and being in the Washington uh, circles and cable news shows and, and, and the like, I was sort of sick, frankly, of public policy and writing and wanted to get away from both. And I went to the Harvard Business School thinking I would be on the business side of launching new media organizations. Uh, my My interest actually was uh, in free news media outlets in developing countries that maybe didn't have exposure to the uh, sort of press that we used to enjoy in the United States anyway, shall we say. <laughs> and uh, uh, while there, I took Clay Christensen's class uh, fall of my second year, and it totally changed the way I saw the world. And literally at the end of class one day, he said, uh, if anyone's interested in writing a book with me, applying my ideas to K-12 public schools, I would love to find a co-author for, for, for this project I'm working on. And I happened to stop by. And truth be told, I, I stopped by not for that, but because of the paper I was writing for the class. And that it was just to talk to him about it. And at the very end, I sort of blurted out, if you'd have me, you know, if, if you're serious about having someone like me co-author a book with you, I came here to escape those things, but this would be an amazing opportunity. I would I would jump at it. And so he thought about it for a little while, meaning a few months. I was not his first choice. And, uh, but then in February, he signed me up to join him on writing what became Disrupting Class. And sort of the deal was, well, I'll help you find whatever you actually want to do, Michael, at the end of the year of writing it. 
The book, of course, took two years. We started the Clayton Christensen Institute midway through that journey. And I realized this is exactly what I wanted to be doing, you know, helping to change uh, education systems in the U.S. worldwide uh, so that every student, every individual can build their passions and, and fulfill their potential. And so that's become my life's work from there. Wow, that's great. So as you got into that work, can you talk a little bit about your just how you've deepened your knowledge in that area, coming into the education space from a little different angle? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you're doing working on some specific research projects, but I think it's always interesting for the listeners to understand, uh, you know, how did you get that really deep well of knowledge from which you wrote and you talk about these topics? Yeah, so I, I'd say initially, you know, I had a public policy background, so I understood some of the issues, but I didn't understand the educational issues deeply. I read a ton. Uh, I got to spend, you know, it was sort of like a syllabus of uh, all the major works that you would want to read from Tayek to Cuban uh, and, and historians even much further back, Conant uh, of Harvard and so forth. I sat in on classes at Harvard. The advantage of being sort of a third-year MBA student, if you will, was that I could sit in on Stacey Childress's class, say, in, in education at the Harvard Business School, go over to seminars at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and things of that nature, really just immersing myself and burying myself in a lot of this work got to meet with a lot of people and interview them so that I could deepen uh, my knowledge through that. And then, of course, Disrupting Class came out. And realistically, the learning journey doesn't end, right? Uh, mm-hmm. We made some language around multiple intelligences and things like that that cognitive and, and neuroscientists would say, interesting concept, but not really the way we think about learning uh, variability these days. And so I've done a ton of reading since then around uh, how to think about this from a cognitive science and neuroscientist uh, perspective, which frankly, are, you know, divergent themselves, uh, but learn a ton about instructional design, uh, history of schooling, structure of schooling, uh, and, and spend time in, in classrooms. The, the other thing I should say is, in disrupting class in particular, I spent several weeks in hold up in uh, archival rooms of districts, <laughs> literally pouring through transcripts from the 1950s all the way through the uh, uh, then it was the early 2000s, uh, just to understand how courses had changed over time and all sorts of things like that, and just interviewing educators to, to really deepen my knowledge. When I shifted into higher ed over time, and, and obviously I still do some K-12 work too, but that shift, I was already out there, if you will, in the ecosystem and just basically got to learn for four or five years uh, at the foot of a lot of people, being at these conferences with them and so forth, to be able to sharpen my voice in that space over time. Yeah, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. I know it's it's interesting. I guess it's it's similar for many of us. Many of us start kind of uh, building our knowledge through reading texts and great works and contemporary works and reading bad works too. And <laughs> um, mm-hmm. yep. but but that that experiential piece certainly resonates with me too. As you got into those interviews and actually getting into the classrooms, getting the primary documents, that really um, changes things. The reason I ask that too is when I talk to a lot of people, a lot of my work over the years and my speaking and consulting was often with people who were in K-12 and higher ed who were trying to figure out uh, how to make sense of the current landscape. And they wanted something different, but they weren't quite sure what it was. And I found that it was quite difficult for me to offer anything unless they'd experienced it. I could tell them about it. Mm -hmm. um, I could show it on all sorts of slides or visuals, but until they actually stepped into a school or a different kind of context, it was hard for them to really uh, really get it or really have enough trust in it in the fact that it could actually happen to pursue it. Yeah, I totally agree with that observation. I mean, it's I, I think I had a leap of faith 
because Clay had been thinking about the problem, frankly, for uh, six or seven years before he hired me. And so there was a groundswell of work already in this space that I, I was sort of able to make somewhat of a leap of logic. But there's no substitute, in my opinion, uh, for being inside of the schools, frankly, both traditional and those on the cutting edge of new practice. So right. I try consciously, right, to make sure that I'm in a school building at least once a month still, really visiting several classes, getting to see how they look like, even if they're on the lagging end of innovation, just so I can understand, you know, what is current practice? How are teachers thinking about this? What what are the barriers and so forth? And then I think it's important to be situated in the future as well. I mean, I, I remember spending a lot of time when I was in the Bay Area. So I lived in the Bay Area for about five years and getting to spend in the K-12 landscape, you know, a lot of time in rocket ship schools, uh, summit learning as they were sort of advancing on their journey uh, around moving to a more mastery or competency-based uh, system and so forth. Getting to spend a lot of time with those innovators and leading-edge thinkers on this really helped forge and shape what I imagined. And, and it's sharpened. Like, I think my writing disrupting class stands up remarkably well, but I do think my writing has a much uh, more sober tone now than it did, say, 10 years ago from from being with those folks. Tell me more about that. What do you mean by a sober tone? Just sort of uh, a little bit more humble about what we don't know and, and realistic about the rate of change maybe not being what mm. we hope it always would be, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I don't know how else to say it except... You know, I think we got a lot right in disrupting class, just for example. Uh, but we had a, we, we I think we had an overly optimistic tone that things would just move as people sort of saw the power of these new systems, mm -hmm. which belies the fact that the disruption we were writing about was within a system that has tons of processes and culture and regulations that are not built around that new thing. And sort of uh, that hope sort of went away. And I'll say around my new book, Choosing College. One of the things I'm thrilled about is I think I, I mentioned the phrase disruptive innovation only one time in the entire <laughs> book. And, and that was something I was actually really excited about. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Although you have a new, there's a new phrase that people start talking about jobs to be done, right? So, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, let's, that's a great transition. Thank you for, the, for leading me that direction. So let's go ahead and dive into the book here. I'll start with just a, a piece of a review from Paul LeBlanc. Some people may recognize that name, present at SNHU, who wrote in the second part of his review, choosing the right college remains a befuddling and irrational, I think it was irrational process. This book changes all that, not because it provides better answers, it provides better questions. And that what that's what's long been needed. If you're considering college, this should be the first book you read. It may well be the only one you'll need. Pretty high praise. Yeah, extremely high praise and, and, and humbling from someone like him who uh, has both led uh, in traditional liberal arts contexts, right, and also been such an innovator. I, I think what Paul's getting at is so many of the guides and books out there focus on which school should you go to, how do you apply, how do you get in. Maybe there'll be a book of how not to get in based on the Varsity Blues scandal now and, and, and things of that nature, right? But the book that we wrote is fundamentally saying, take a step back from that first and ask yourself why. Why are you really trying to go? and try to clarify what's known in your life, what's unknown, and be honest about your current uh, intentions and circumstance and progress, and then start to broaden the aperture of the number of schools that could fit into that to help you make progress in a meaningful way. Yeah, and I think you just sort of answered this this question, but I'll sort of frame it again just as we start, is 
what is the college choosing problem that you're really focusing on this in this book? Yeah, you know, so many people obviously jump into college, and frankly, it's not just college, it's any lifelong learning opportunity after high school, where because they don't understand the progress that they're trying to make and, and their why, the experience doesn't match up with what they're trying to do. And so we see, obviously, high dropout rates in, in many programs. Uh, a lot of the debt concerns, I would argue, are not concerns about debt per se, but they're arguments of if you don't complete and sort of get the benefits from a monetary perspective from the degree, then the debt, even if it's small, relatively speaking, uh, can be quite crippling, right? And so all of these mismatches and discomfort with and expressions of dissatisfaction uh, with the choices that students have made is really the college choosing problem that we're getting at. Yeah, that's great. And, and I want to get into that. And, and uh, I love the jobs to be done framework. I think it, it provides an interesting way of looking at this and talking about that. But I'd also like to stop because a lot of the people listening to this are are uh, likely people working uh, in higher education or K-12 education mm-hmm. or some other environment. Um, and I'm sure as you've, you you have some comments about this in the book as well, but how are higher education institutions doing in helping prospective students make the decision? I think not very well, frankly, because they haven't framed this around what's the progress that the individuals are trying to make. And in some cases, they're not super clear about what their own missions or or what they're trying to do themselves as an institution. And the deeper I think you can clarify on both sides of that, then you can develop a language that matches up with the students so that they can understand how they fit into uh, what you're what what you are built to do, right? And so that they can see themselves in it. And, and in many cases, a lot of the language we use, a lot of the way we allow people to uh, try to experience college before they come is built to mask in many ways uh, what the experience will actually be like or, or, or obfuscate it in, in the sense that, you know, we even talk about liberal arts as a language. It turns out that a lot of the population doesn't know what a liberal arts college is versus a traditional university, right? And so when we use language like that, that's deeply meaningful from what I'll call the supply side, uh, from the institutional mm-hmm. side, it's less meaningful to the students themselves and and and, and their parents and so forth. And so tr- I, I think we have a ways to go in terms of how we talk about what we do for individuals and not reducing it. This is jumping way ahead, but you know, there's so many people right now out there, and I think I've been guilty of this as well, who say, you know, college, you go to college to get a job, full full stop, right? <laughs> And that's just not the reality of what students are framing this as. It's a much richer set of social and emotional experiences, in addition to some functional ones uh, that they want out of this experience. But I think colleges could do a much better job of matching and understanding and talking about what they offer. So what about the state of just higher education? And I know this isn't the essence of the book. We'll we'll get into to that more very soon. But mm-hmm. uh, I am... Uh, intrigued by the sort of higher education advertising wars that are happening right now. And I'm wondering how that feeds into this decision-making process as well. I mean, uh, we're really advertising it similar to almost any other product and service. And I'm not sure if that really gives a prospective learner a better insight on what might best match their needs and goals. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's an extraordinarily uh, expensive and high stakes, uh, purchase, right, in, in some sense, uh, that's more akin to buying a house in, in, in that way than it is to just a you know a simple product or an impulse buy, right? And so, 
you know, you don't see people sort of just saying like, houses, get them, you know, get them quick, get them cheap, get in, right? Sort of thing on, on, on TV or the internet. Like, that just wouldn't make sense. And yet, that's very much, I think, how we're treating higher ed, whether it's at the elite end through what U.S. News and athletics and things like that provide as a marketing or advertising platform, in, in essence, or, you know, in the online world, right, where it's very much a clicks and sort of quick game of trying to get responses and people in and out and so forth. I don't think we're really... Uh, reaching them where they where they need to be, and and it's interesting. Uh, my co-host of of the podcast that I do, Future You, Jeff Salingo, has a book coming out uh, in in the fall around the admissions game, and and the first chapter actually of it is fully devoted to how did we get here from a direct marketing and and advertising perspective. And, you know, it, it comes down to really just trying to fill classes and so forth. But a lot of colleges, I think, haven't asked the question of how do we make sure we're getting the right students for our mission? And I, I think if you started there, you would have a very different uh, way of reaching out to students and, and a different way of having a conversation with them. And it would be a conversation, right? Not a series of blitzes up front yeah. uh, is, is sort of my sense. Last thought really quickly on this, and, and this is from the online world. Uh, where we see that the cost of acquisition for most institutions, as it's become more competitive in, in, in online uh, universities and online education, has gone up right over time. Right, that it's right. actually more expensive to find students. Our experience with the jobs to be done framework is that when you really have gotten, I'm going to use the wrong term for higher ed, but product market fit, if you will, you're really doing the job to be done for what students want, your cost of acquisition actually goes down because you don't need to advertise so much to help people understand what you're doing because the word of mouth, sort of the the people can naturally slot it into, oh, this is my circumstance in life. This is what I'm trying to accomplish. Therefore, I want this school, right? And and it becomes less about spending money on, on marketing and more, are we really helping people accomplish what they want? And, and my hypothesis based on the cost of online going up is that most institutions have, actually haven't gotten that value correct yet. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I did some research a while back. I remember it was ranging from anywhere from eight hundred to five thousand dollars per start for an MBA online program at, at one point. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's gone. I think it's gone up year over year. The you know, there's a couple institutions where it's gone down, like Western Governors University, and I think in an example like that, they're super clear about what they're providing for whom and what circumstance, and equally so who they're not serving. Right, mm -hmm. uh, and so they have a very different process that students find out about them, I think it's 60% or something like that, referrals, not advertising. So it's a very different conversation when, you, when, when, when that's your starting point. Right. That's great. And I'll just, uh, just to kind of finish this and we'll dive into the jobs to be done is um, I, a couple of, a number of years ago, I, I gave a keynote or a some kind of talk for, I think it was Learning House, you know, one of the, the groups that worked with a lot mm -hmm. of colleges for online. And I'd done some work to prepare for that. And I was, I did a discourse analysis of the language that people were using around uh, recruitment. And I found a, a fascinating change over the last few years, four years or so, where the language moved almost from sales metaphors to dating metaphors, which I thought was huh. kind of intriguing. Um, that is fascinating, right? Yeah. Wow. Um, kind of like matchmaking kinds of things, sort of the, yeah. and which led me to write about sort of the match.com of higher ed, you know, what would that look like? <laughs> right. And, and, and I've seen that, um, in your, in your writing and what's, what's so interesting, I think is when you do, and, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but, but maybe it's actually interesting to consider the origins 
of the study, we, we didn't originally set out to write a book for students and parents to help them make better choices. We originally did the research because we had this hypothesis that colleges didn't really understand the students coming to them, and therefore they were serving students fundamentally trying to do different things, mm. which was creating complexity, driving up overhead costs. And so we were like, let's help the institutions. Uh, and part of what you realize when you do these jobs to be done interviews to to create these stories of, of why students make the choices that they do and how they, the trade-offs that they make, you actually start to capture a lot of language uh, from how the students talk about it themselves. And really savvy schools, I think, then not only uh, you know reorient in some cases or clarify what they're serving, they also take that language and start to use the language, we call it of the demand side, as opposed to the supply side language, so they're actually communicating in the same way. Yeah. Well, well, let's, I, I would hate to go through this interview and not get to the jobs to be done. That would be a disservice to our listeners. So can you take us into, uh, take us into the book a little bit and, and give us a glimpse of these, I don't know if you want to go to, to all five of them, but, but into the jobs mm -hmm. to be done that you begin to discover uh, in your research. Yeah, so I'll, I'll I'll step back one step really quickly and just say for your listeners that maybe aren't familiar with the framework, the basic notion is that uh, when we have a, a struggling moment in our lives, people don't really hire products and services. They're trying to make progress and they pull in an experience or a service to help them make progress in that moment of struggle. So the jobs to be done is really looking at the set of forces that act on people uh, to to make a change in their lives and start to consume something. And the reason I say set of forces is because I'm about to you know throw out what we call the five jobs, but each job is really made up of several things that are pushing you, saying like what I'm doing today is no longer uh, working for me or what I'm allowed to do tomorrow, and also pulling you. And and the insight behind that is very rarely do human beings do something for one reason, right? We're, we're, we're complicated beings. And so we try to capture in the jobs to be done research, the sets of reasons and how they move or don't move together, if you will, uh, to try to understand this. So, uh, you know, we found five jobs to be done, as you said, the, the first one uh, was the one that I think a lot of admissions officers hate that it exists. And, <laughs> and it was surprising to me, uh, but it was, we call it, help me get into my best school. So these were students for whom they were really trying to get into the best for its own sake. They felt like they had done the work and now they almost deserved to have what they defined as the best for them. So it wasn't necessarily U.S. News and World Report list. It could be you know, the best school as they defined it within a 25-mile radius or, or whatever it might be. But it was all about the act of getting in, less what they would do once they were there. You know, they could articulate they wanted the classic college experience or the brick and mortar, you know, beautiful campus or the reputation and prestige or reinvent themselves with new people. But these were more ideals and words rather than very clearly defined concepts in many cases. Um, the second job we found is sort of the flip side of that, we call it help me do what's expected of me. So these are students who are going along, uh, going to school because someone else in their lives told them that they ought to do it. And they were almost trying to satisfy or obey that. And that could be a parent, it could be an educator, it could be their peers and the sort of general sense that this is what I'm supposed to do. But they weren't really excited about the experience. Incredible apathy in this one. And they were sort of going along to get along, check the box. They sort of knew it was a good thing. It was the logical next step. But they weren't excited. And in contrast with that first one I just said, help me get into my best, where people were generally intrinsically motivated and did pretty well, the uh, help me do what's expected of me, at, at least of our sample, 
74% of the students had dropped that or transferred uh, at the time that we interviewed them when they when they went to school under this uh, un, un, under this reason, hmm. uh, which was super interesting. Um, I'll, I'll go quicker through the other three. We had uh, no, that's great. You're doing away. great. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, so help me get away. So these were students who were running from something, but not necessarily towards something. In college, was something socially acceptable they could say that they were doing. Uh, you know, and this is like running from an impressive hometown that maybe didn't accept them for an identity reason, uh, maybe an abusive stepfather that they were escaping, or maybe something more benign. But it was really running from, not necessarily toward. Uh, the outcomes were not particularly good in this job. And then the uh, last two, one was uh, what we call help me step it up. So these were students that looked around and there was a considerable push to change something in their lives. It wasn't working for them. They would literally say, this wasn't me anymore. This isn't who I am. I need to step it up. And it was eerie, by the way. They almost all used that phrase. Like, it was time for me to step it up. It was now or never. They like they would almost all use that same language. And uh, basically, it, it was triggered by something in their, someone or something in their life depending on them for something. So they were about to have a kid. Uh, there were mortgage payments due. Whatever it was, something triggered it where they said, it's now or never. I've got to step it up and get specific and practical skills and certifications to make progress in my life. So, so just very quickly one, on that one, on, yeah. on that fourth one. Yeah. So that, just that last statement, I think is, is uh, I just wanted to tease out a little bit. So for the step it up audience, were most of them pretty pragmatic in terms of the outcomes that they were seeking? Yeah, they were much more focused generally. Uh, they, and, and it could be, if they were in, say, nursing, right? It was all about the degree. If they were in a field where you could get in without the credential, but it was, you know, they literally didn't have the learning that it was more focused on the skills and knowledge that they would develop. Okay. Did that make sense? Great. Yeah. And then the last one we found, uh, was what we call help me extend myself. So I think of this as the lifelong learning job. Uh, but it wasn't sort of learning for learning's sake. It was people who had this deep yearning to be more, do more challenge themselves. And they were in an okay place, maybe not a great place in some cases, but there was nothing wrong in their life. And they sort of said, now I'm able to clear the time and the budget so that I can pursue this learning. When we found this one, I said to my uh, co-author, Bob Mesta, who's, who's the founder of this Jobs to be Done, thinking along with Clay Christensen, uh, I said, well, I've never experienced this one in my entire life uh, with two kids and a mortgage and so forth. And he said, well, sure you have. You just don't go to college. Like your version of Help Me Extend Myself is hiring a podcast or a book or a YouTube video or something like that. Uh, you're not going to bet the bank and go to college in your particular circumstance. And, and this was a feature of this job, which was the move that students made when they were in this was typically pretty low risk. Uh, it wasn't going to upset the apple cart. And if it didn't work out for them, they could always go back to doing what they were doing. Yeah. So with this audience, can you talk a little bit about the sample? Um, you certain, you referenced, uh, there's there, at least there's a, um, uh, implied audience in some of the ways that you were talking, but but if you can uh, explain that a little bit, were you dealing with primarily students who are recent high school graduates? Um, how many post traditional learners were in the in the sample? Anything you can talk totally, about? Totally, yeah. So yeah, totally. So it was a pretty wide range. We did. Um, I want to say it was 209 documentaries in the formal survey or 209 stories that we captured in the formal uh, study. And then subsequently, we've done like another 60 or 70. But the uh, of that 209, uh, it was ages 18 to 60, uh, roughly 
just under two thirds was more that high school learner or, or maybe up to age 22 or 23. And then a third was above 20, 24 and above basically. Uh, so not quite mirroring, uh, but pretty close to mirroring, right? What college looks like in this country, uh, from a racial and gender perspective, it was pretty representative. Uh, it was a lot of first gen students, uh, you know, first in their, uh, family to go to college in many cases, significant number of immigrants, relatively speaking. And then, uh, it was weighted toward the lower end of the socioeconomic, uh, scale. So it was 60% in the bottom three, uh, quintiles, which overweights, uh, for that relative to what, uh, who actually enrolls in higher education. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the last thing, uh, for, for, for your listeners to know is we weren't just looking at college. We looked at boot camps. We looked at some online universities. We looked at historically black colleges and universities, community colleges. It was a pretty wide range of programs that we sampled, uh, through. So we could really get a snapshot of what is higher education, uh, look like across the country. Right. And in terms of these five, you also alluded to this a little bit, but are there certain jobs that to be done uh, that motivated people and ended up in the more positive outcomes in terms of graduation rates or satisfaction rates or things like that? Yeah, totally. So help me get into my best school. It was over 80%. So they were extremely satisfied with the experience. Uh, the help me step it up. I think it was like 76% of our sample was, was very, uh, motiv- was, was very satisfied with the experience. I think the quarter that wasn't, by the way, they hadn't done enough work on the front end of clarifying what the future that they thought they wanted was really going to be like or what they were going to be required to do to get to that future, if that makes sense. So, sure. uh, the, the example I often give is uh, one student we talked to, she uh, had always wanted to be a midwife, was in a situation where she had to step it up. Her mom had just recovered from cancer, and there was a quick slot in an online school that was going to give her a teaching degree. And she was like, well, maybe forget the midwife stuff. Like A lot of people in my family are teachers. I'll, I'll go do that. I'm going to step it up and do that. And that didn't end well uh, because she hadn't clarified what being a teacher would actually look like. And then the help me extend myself was... Uh, the highest satisfaction of anyone uh, of any of the jobs it was 88% or something like that and uh and it wasn't necessarily every single one of these students completed right but they were just thrilled with the learning for its own sake which was a very uh neat experience yeah and i'm at a school with a lot of extend myself students mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can see it at the graduation ceremonies <laughs> yeah no and i think it's a great i mean the 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 opportunity right is that a lot of those people, the students are there for the learning sake itself, which is so cool, right? And what's tricky about it is if they drop out, they still might be really excited, but it might not be great for your institution. And so right. I think <laughs> a little bit of capturing the success rates in different ways is really important in this job because it's not about the completion per se for those students. And this is a place where I think a lot of our metrics uh, and a lot of what the Department of Education and so forth measures institutions on might not actually be lining up with why the students are there. And, and we just have to be more thoughtful about what are we measuring and, and, and how do we assess that? I mean, in that case, like the learning is way more valuable to those students. How they apply it to their own lives is way more valuable than is the degree itself, say. Yeah, right. I mean, we have, I mean, when you have an alum that that just wins an award for a Broadway musical that they started when they were here, but mm-hmm. they never graduated. I don't know. I think that's maybe worth measuring. I would count that <laughs> as success, right? And, right. and and I think it goes to this uh, is that we, we, 
we don't have the nuance we need around measurement. And I, I really do think it's by job, right? It, like the help me step it up one is another classic one. If you're in a community college, say, and you're serving a student who comes to you with help me step it up, if they get into that next job, you know, that, that allows them to make more money for their family a semester into the experience and they drop out of the community college, that counts as a negative in our data dashboards. Mm-hmm. And it is objectively a total win and positive for that student. And it's thanks to you. <laughs> and so we've got to do a better job of capturing that, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, we're almost at the end of our time. We could have another hour or two on this, Michael, but I'd love to just <laughs> maybe give one, just uh, pull out a couple of insights from part three of the book, where you talk about how institutions can design better experiences based upon these uh, insights from the jobs to be done uh, work. Any any few a few tips you can give us here at the end? Yeah, you know, I think one is, A, obviously step back and try to figure out why the students are actually there. I mean, the fact that you know that a lot of them are there to extend themselves, like, I think is incredibly important. And I would be laser-like focused on delighting those people and deciding which of those jobs you're not going to serve students on and try to create a more honest and rigorous application process that can screen people for whom you're meant to serve and tell those that you know, aren't the right fit. It's it's not that you're not a good student or something like that. It's just, this is where the expectations are going to be misaligned for what you're looking for. I think the second thing that'll do is help you lower costs because you can really streamline around the job to be done and not be dealing with all the complexity of serving students in, in different jobs, which creates a lot of overhead costs. It creates a lot of different programs for different folks uh, that drives up costs and so forth. And, and, uh, frankly, suboptimizes. And then the last one that I'll just mention, uh, I, there's different ones we can mention, but I left this book feeling like a lot more students, at least out of high school, ought to be taking a gap year or what I've come to call a discovery year before they jump into college itself. Mm. They, they, they lack the understanding of their passions and purpose, or maybe more importantly, what they don't like to do uh, before they get there. And they would benefit from a year of not backpacking around Europe, but literally, you know, a series of immersive experiences to teach them about themselves. And I just wonder, could colleges curate that experience as the first year for those students who maybe come in to help me do what's expected of me or help me get away, you know, help them fulfill that, but curate a set of experiences to teach students about themselves before they jump in on a gen ed uh, track or on a guided pathway or whatever it might be. I think that would be enormously valuable for the campuses and the learners themselves. And, And I'd love to see institutions get creative around that. Some rich insights. Another excellent book, Michael. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate what you do. Thanks for listening to this episode of EDU Futures, where we agree with Bucky Fuller when he wrote, You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Check out show notes and other episodes at futurist.fm forward slash edu futures.